I had this personal challenge of preaching this message three different ways, or at least two different ways, and I decided to do that about 15 minutes ago. Uh, this is going to be a little bit different as we start this thing off than was what at 8.15 turned out to be. Um, let, me, let me open with this question. Uh, who in here ever played high school football? Come on. High school football. Like three people? I, I, I was going to play high school football, and then my mom said, you're too skinny, you're going to get hurt. And I thought, well, man, 43 years into it, that's all changed. But I remember she, she thought that about me, and she was overprotective mother hen in my life. And uh, so I didn't play football. And then I was going to make the NBA in basketball. It didn't quite work out. I, I made it to a Bible college, which was close, right? But uh, I play City League, lots of stats, lots of stats in Church League. But uh, I love sports, and my, my kids love sports. In fact, I think my most talented athlete is my daughter. Uh, she is showing a lot of promising signs, specifically in ping pong. Uh, so we, we love, yeah, she's good. She's, she's good. She, I think Ari, just side note, no plan on saying this, and like I said, this is a different sermon than last time, I think she could go pro. She's our one light and shining. She's our hope. But, uh, but I want to I talk to you a bit about something that happened in football that caught my eye and then directly relates, and it's not in my notes because I wasn't planning on going here, but I think it directly relates to how I want to open this thing up. I was uh, having a conversation with my sons, the future legacy of the Johnson home. One of which is just about to turn 18, 220 pounds, 6'4", uh, used to just be, I mean, he's kind of just metamorphosized in our home, and we, we barely recognize him. The other one is my younger son, who's a freshman, 5'10", 140, living in frustration. And he's living kind of in that shadow, and he's starting to hit, and he's actually really a coordinated kid. He's really a coordinated kid, but he's still small. And he was having a heart-to-heart with my older son, and then I was kind of just playing armchair quarterback and listening. And he was saying, he was saying to my son, what, what do I need to do in football so that I can play next year? This was a few months ago. And my son, who's bigger and been playing football for a long time, said, it's not what you think, Jet. It's not as much about talent as it is about crazy. I never played football, so I didn't know what what he was talking about. And I said, well, why don't you expand on that idea, Joseph? And uh, he goes, well, like for me, I've never been very fast, and I'm not, you know, like the superstar of the team, but I have this kind of foam that comes out of my mouth, and I have a crazy streak to me. And I thought to myself, you know, that's very accurate. He's always been Crazy is one way to say it, and there's other adjectives to use. But uh, what, like, so for example, we grew up by Brown Park, and uh, when we grew up by Brown Park, do you guys know Brown Park in Aberdeen? You, you know how it used to have a different slide to it? Do you remember that slide that uh, was big and tall and metal? It was big before they had safety regulations at parks in Aberdeen. So when Joseph was two years old. I remember he was just kind of this kid that could always take a hit. That, that slide had to have gone up at least 10 feet. And I was talking on my analog data cell phone with my prepaid, like my, you know, 500 minutes a month and anything else you go over, you pay for. And I wasn't paying attention. And I remember all of a sudden, Joey just kind of like Humpty Dumpty tipped off the slide and fell. It was sand, but he fell on his, you know, his head. And it, it, and it explains a lot, but... but <laughs> But I remember something weird about that situation in that he did not cry. He just 
got up and looked at me like, you know, he just kind of looked at me. And I thought, this kid's different. This kid's special. And then ever since then, he's been that kid that just can take a hit. And he tells my son, he says, here's the key. If you want to play football, you have to do two things. You have to take a hit and you have to give a hit. And so I tell you that story because that's how it works spiritually. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, and I'm not talking about being saved, but I'm talking about actively working within, thank you, within the kingdom of God to do something for the Lord, that you do so in a way where you're not just taking a defensive posture, but you're actively taking a hit and giving a hit for the kingdom of God. That's just kind of how it works. And so as we talk about the conversation of the resurrection today, we're doing so through the lens of spiritual warfare. And just a caveat to the conversation, this is where we're going to be for the next several weeks. As we talk about spiritual warfare at New Life, I am fully aware. I have a background with people that fit this mold that when you can have this conversation, it can get a little goofy. Have you ever had a conversation about spiritual warfare and it's like you were talking to someone with a good heart, but the lights were on and it felt like no one was home? Are you tracking with that? I have. Okay, so I want to say this as a caveat. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because this stuff is absolutely real. It is absolutely real. There is something going on outside of us that then affects us on the peripheral. And that's what we're going to talk about the resurrection today through the lens of spiritual warfare because the, re- the resurrection is the cornerstone conversation to why we have victory in the spiritual realm. And we're going we're to move past the resurrection account. We're going to get into the early church in the story of the church of Ephesus and what Paul has to say as he closes out a letter to the church in Ephesus. And I want you to follow along with me, but I, but I want to kind of give you the backstory first of how spiritual warfare works. Spiritual warfare works through the lens of moves and counter moves. The Bible's very clear. There is everything that's happening in an earthly sense, in the physical, in the, in the blood and flesh of this world. But then there's this whole other realm, this heavenly realm. There's a demonic realm. There, there's an attack going on. There's a war that's been waged. There's a victory, and here's the key, and I'm going to give it away early. There's a victory that's already been won, so you don't have to live the way that you have lived. You don't have to be who you have been. And it's Easter, so you can maybe say amen to that. Amen? That you can live differently in a world around you that's gone mad. Can you relate? I mean, you don't even have to be a Christian to just go, you know, I never thought it would be like this 15 or 20 years ago, and things have gotten a little crazy. And so for the next seven weeks, we're going to talk about that, and it starts right here and right now. But, but here's the conflict of the backstory: That there's a move and there's a counter move. And it starts before Adam and Eve even. It starts in heaven. God made his first move, creating angels, and then the devil rebelled and took a third of the angels with him. God makes Adam and Eve, and then Satan, trying to usurp his control, deceives Adam and Eve, and then sin enters into the equation. God counters with a redemptive covering. He calls Abraham, and he says, I'm going to start a people from you. There will be countless people. And they're going to be my people with my name. And I'm going to set this people apart. And then Satan counters by getting these people stuck in Egypt as slaves. 
And then God counters by rising up this person who stutters, names Moses, and he tells Pharaoh, what does he tell him? Who knows their Bible? Let my people go. Move and counter move. Offense and defense. The entire Old Testament is based on this premise. And then all of a sudden, the book of Malachi, 400 years of silence. And everyone's wondering, when's the next move? When's the next counter move? When's the Messiah coming to be the ultimate counter move? They're staring at what's happening around them. The book of Matthew comes into place. Jesus lands on earth. A laundry list of generations until we get to Jesus Christ himself. So God stops using other men and sends his own son as the God-man down to do what only God can do through his son, Jesus Christ. And Satan counters by tempting Jesus in the wilderness. And so you have this genealogy of Christ. You have this person who had this person who had this person who had this person. And then Jesus Christ, through the line of David, arrives on the scene. Move and counter move. And all this taking place, Satan now in the, in the wilderness tempting Jesus. Jesus fighting back with the word of God. And then Satan's final move, Jesus Christ nailed to a cross. Jesus Christ beaten. We talked about it in depth on Friday. Scourged. Crown of thorns placed on his head. And God makes the ultimate final move. And it represents what we're experiencing today. In his ultimate move of victory, where he goes on the offense, Jesus takes the hit, and now God delivers the final punch. Because when they wake up early in the morning, the tomb is empty, the stone is rolled away, and everything changes. And there is this great theologian at New Life, his name is Reverend Charles Hogel. And he's getting a little up there in age. He's not old. He just has that wisdom stage of life with that just for men gray. And he tells the rest of the pastors this line that we're going to say the next seven weeks. That we don't. Chuck, do you want to come up here and say it? Or should I just say it? I'm just going to say it. Okay, nope, sit down. I'm just going to say it. He says, we don't fight for victory. Have you ever heard him say that? If you know Chuck, we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. That this is our positional right in Christ. And it's like the Apostle Paul agrees with Chuck because Paul says in Ephesians 6.10, and you can follow along in your Bibles, finally be strong in the Lord. This is where we're going to be for the next several weeks. Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. He's saying this, how do we fight these spiritual battles? How do we have this victory in Christ with an empty tomb? Well, first you have to understand what's happening all around you. And the fundamental issue is so counterintuitive because when you look around, you think that the peripheral is the problem, but the peripheral is just symptomatic of the larger problem. There is something taking place outside of us. There's a cosmic battle and war that has already been waged. And I know that sounds like a sci-fi movie, but that is absolutely the truth. That to understand how to have the victory, you have to first diagnose where the problem lies. And so write this idea down on Easter. Understand that people are not the problem. 
even though it seems like what you can see, touch, taste, and smell, and hear is the problem, that's just the peripheral. There's something going on outside of us. There's something that's manifested inside of us. And whatever is going on in your world, the people around you are merely the conduit, not the root. Whatever's going on in your life is rooted first in the spiritual realm. So let me give definition to it, and you can write this down too. How are we going to define this thing in the next several weeks starting here on Easter? Spiritual warfare definition, it's simple. Conflict in the invisible that affects the visible. Conflict in the invisible that affects the visible. Those things that you can see that you think are the problem are really just symptomatic. The battles in the unseen responsible for the battles in the seen. Whatever's happening in the flesh and the blood created by the unseen. Paul talks about this very clearly. Ephesians, in fact, let, let me just walk through a few of them to lay a foundation. Ephesians 1.3, Paul talks about this to the church. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the, underline this, heavenly places. Ephesians 1.20, he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, that's Easter Sunday, and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. And then here's where we get a piece of the action too. Ephesians 2.6, and he raised him up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So, so here's the theological framework for what Paul's talking about to the church in Ephesus. He says this, he says, your blessings, just like your battles, are in heavenly places. It's spiritual. It's in a realm of the unseen. He says, Jesus Christ comes to earth, dies his death, goes to the cross, raises from it, has victory through it, and gives us the victory. And now he's seated, not right here, but he's seated in heavenly places. And here's what's so cool in Ephesians 2. You're seated. This is your destination. This is where you're trying to end up. You're seated with him in heavenly places. And so when you have Christ, you have access you have access to this entire other realm where the battle is truly being waged. And if you were to be honest, how, how many of us would go, you know, I, I kind of know that's true, but I haven't thought about that for a long time. Because my peripheral consumes me. The battle's being waged, and it's in the spiritual realm. So within that, because just like a good football map, good, like a football, like a sports analogy, because of that, the enemy has schemes, and that's what Paul talks about. That the enemy knows stuff that we don't know. We have access to the knowledge, but we don't know it. He talks about it, right, in the text that we just read. That there are powers of darkness in this spiritual realm. That Satan is the father of lies, but he's also the prince of darkness. And his whole goal is to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And so this is what he does, and this is maybe a light bulb watershed moment in your life if you don't really know about these things. If you're wondering why your life can get so incredibly frustrated, even when you're trying to serve the Lord, there's some things that are happening. You serve a Savior that's all-powerful, and you serve a Savior who has already won the battle, but then you also have an enemy and an adversary who's still roaming the earth because the final story has not been written. We haven't gotten to the book of Revelation. And so he's still roaming around this earth, and that's going to come to an end. The Bible says that he's going to be thrown in the lake of fire, and so we know his eternal destination. 
He's the father of lies, but he's like a coach. He watches game filled. He knows how to exploit the weakness. He knows everything about how we tick, and he has a third of the angels in this demonic realm that he is in. And so he's wreaking havoc on us. Even though we have the victory, even though we have the game plan, he's exploiting the game film. He's smart enough, because he's crafty and he's manipulative, he is smart enough to know how you tick and then how to take advantage of you at your weakest point. For example, he knows about what happened as a child. He knows about the fears of abandonment that you possess. He knows that you have a tendency to run to what God doesn't want for you and run from the throne of God. He knows it. He knows that you, you have this theological framework of victory that you don't always operate in. And so he exploits the game film. He knows the coping strategies and the patterns that are manifested in your life as a means of survival. He knows that you see the peripheral as the problem when it's really just the diagnostic. So all of this is happening, and the first thing to recognize, and you can put this in your notes because there's like a little fill in the blank there, is this. When you're dealing with spiritual warfare, know that people are not the problem. People are just symptomatic. In fact, even more than people, this world around you is not the core problem. There are two problems, your sin and an enemy that's trying to destroy you. And praise God for the resurrection because without it, we are all in massive trouble. The second thing is this. The enemy is deceptive. The enemy's goal is to do something very clear, crystal clear. The enemy's goal is to absolutely deceive yourself, to deceive those around you, to deceive myself as a pastor specifically, and to get a stronghold or a foot in the door of the local church, the bride of Christ, because once you have that, you can wreak havoc. He knows that his time is limited. And so then Paul is crystal clear. He says this in verse 11. He says, stand firm. And when you stand firm, stand firm specifically against the schemes of the devil. That the devil has a specific methodology and a means of operating that he doesn't want you to know about it because once you know about how he operates, then your game plan can adjust because then you can watch game film. And it's all right here in scripture. It's not the way we see it. It's not the way culture has defined it. The devil is not in a red jumpsuit with a pitchfork. It's not like, you know, you got the angel and the cartoon in one ear and the little demon in the other and it's playful. No, he is an absolute deceiver. He looks way more appealing than that. He lives to deceive. I I heard it say this way, Satan operates by a sleight of hand. That's what makes him a great magician. He thinks that you're seeing this over here, and then he's actually doing this thing over here, and you don't see it, and that's how you're deceived. That he'll act the way you want him to act. He'll give you those things that seemingly seem good to take. And then he'll attack you at your weakest point. And then he has this main goal because you have this covering in Christ because of the resurrection. He has this main goal that if he's going to accomplish anything, he has to take you outside of the protective covering of God. Because when you're within that covering, which is what we're going to talk about till mo- to past Mother's Day, when you're in that covering, you're good. When you're putting on the full armor of God, when you're putting on the the football helmet, the cleats and the pads, all of a sudden you can take a hit and you can give a hit. But when you walk outside of that covering, you're incredibly vulnerable. And so Satan has a goal. Write this down. He knows as long as you're under God's protecting, 
protection. He can't do what he wants to do. So his goal, write it down, is a plan of relocation. He wants to take you to a different spot outside of the covering so that he can have his way in your life. He wants to take you to a different spot and relocate you so he can take over your marriage. He wants to take you to a different spot so he can relocate you to different peripheral relationships so that all of a sudden you don't have the covering of this power of resurrection. You know what the Bible says? The Bible says something profound and something beautifully scary. The Bible says this. Paul says this. He says the same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead lives somewhere. And that place that he lives is in you. That that's how we operate from a place of victory. But the devil has a secret. And I'm, I'm going to tell you something. That if you forget everything else, this is what I want you to remember. Because this is going to be an overarching concept in the next several weeks. This is something that feels counterintuitive, but is biblically accurate. Because we have a covering, because we have the resurrection, because the tomb is empty, there's something that happens that we need to know about. When it comes to those spiritual battles, when it comes from the attack of the enemy in our life, the only power, and and maybe you don't write things down, but imprint it on your mind, because this is the price of admission on Easter. The only power that the devil has over you is the power that you choose to give him. Now that's not for everybody, because if you're not a Christian, then he just has the power, right? You're, you're absolutely living in sin. Your eyes haven't been opened to the gospel. But if you've said, Jesus, I want you to be my Savior, and I'm laying my down, life down at the foot of the cross, you have affection for Christ, you're, you're attempting to operate in the power that rose Jesus from the dead, then when you are succumbing to the power of the enemy, the only power that the enemy has over you is the power that you choose to give him because he's already lost, because he's already been defeated, because there's a covering over you. There's a protective measure that God has taken in your life. And so anything he does, this is what's scary and this is what's beautiful, anything he does is a result of you telling him, even though you might not realize you're telling him, anything he does is a result of you telling him it's okay for him to do. If hell is wreaking havoc on your life, you need to know that in Christ, if that's your testimony right now, you have given him permission to wreak havoc on your life. Because the promises of the gospel are not future tense. The promises of the gospel of freedom in Christ, of being alive in Christ, of having power in Christ are right here and right now. And then we look around at an impotent church all across America and we go, what is the problem? Well, the problem is we've walked outside of the covering. The problem is we have little affection for Christ. We've given the devil permission to tell us that we need all sorts of things that are really destroying us. We've given them footholds in our life as we flip through our phones and we absorb garbage in, garbage out, garbage in, garbage out. We've given them the role of raising our kids. We have taken a back seat and we don't want to hit anyone and we don't want to be hit, so we are terrible football players. We're not engaging in battle. We're not braveheart. We're sitting by passively, sucking our thumbs, wondering why there's so much havoc around us. 
And for me, I'm praying about it. What are we going to do this Easter? This is where I'm going. And if you want to come back for the next several weeks, we're going to look at what does it look like to put on the armor of God and fight those spiritual battles to be a church that's thriving in Christ. Because like we say, if nothing changes, nothing changes. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. There's victory in Christ. The devil devil can't do anything without our consent. And then for some reason, gladly, and myself included, we gladly sign over our rights. We give them the deed to the farm. And so Paul says this. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. Right? These are, these are the, the football analogy that came to me at about after first service today. The whole armor of God, the pads, the helmet, the cleats, everything, that you may be able to do something. Withstand in the evil day, the spiritual battle, the cosmic reality, And having done all, then this is what you do. If you're in Christ, you stand firm. You stand firm. You you have this tool in your tool bag. Or maybe the other way to see it is through the lens of this move and counter move concept. That when you put on the armor of God, what you choose to do is align yourself with God And then you don't just counter, you make the final move because Christ already made the final move. Heard a guy talk about preparing for this message. One of my favorite preachers, Tony Evans. Right now, media, I am all over it. He is so biblically sound and he's old school and he just rips it. I heard him talk about this idea of moving and counter-moving, of spiritual battles and freedom in Christ. And he, and he tells this story of the final move. And he says, there's this great chess player, one of the best chess players that ever lived. I have no idea if this is true, by the way, just caveat. And he goes into an art gallery and he is mesmerized by this picture. And the picture has two people in it, one person who's gloating, one person who's biting their nails and terrified and you know, kind of has a puddle under their feet. And uh, maybe it's water, we don't know, but... Uh, the person that's terrified and biting their nails is, is sitting in between this person who's the devil and a young man who is cowardly. And in the middle of them is a chessboard. And so this chess player is mesmerized by this. And, and, that's, and the, the whole painting is called The Final Move or maybe Checkmate. And this young man who's scared out of his mind has the enemy playing chess for his soul. It's kind of like a, the whole theme of the devil went down to Georgia, if you're into that. Not biblically accurate, but good song, right? Great fiddle. It's kind of got that feel to it. And so the young man is, has this chessboard, sees no way out, is terrified for losing his soul. But the greatest chess player that's ever lived comes and wants to study the painting and then takes his own chessboard out, lays it underneath the painting, and then proceeds to take every piece that's in the painting and place it on his chessboard and just study the board like a true nerd. And so he's studying the board, and all of a sudden, he's like the Grinch where this smile just starts growing on his face because he realizes something. He has this epiphany when he looks at the board that this young man who thinks that his destiny has been set in stone, that's paralyzed by fear, that sees no way out, is really uh, has the ability to checkmate the enemy and make his final move. He just doesn't see it. Because he's so frozen that he cannot see what's really on the board. 
And then I think to myself, how, how true is that in life, isn't it? That you're frozen, that you're paralyzed, that you're crippled, that you're consumed, that you're addicted, that your coping strategies are terrible and have anything to do with Christ, but Christ. And then Jesus Christ comes along, opens up your eyes, allows you to see the chessboard accurately, and He shows you that the checkmate, I don't play chess, so I don't know how it works exactly, but the checkmate is right there in front of you, and the checkmate is simple. It's not what you have to do. The checkmate is what's already been done. When we wake up just a hair, it's not like you have to go earn it. It's already been laid at your feet. It's already under the protective covering of an empty tomb that you have power to live the way Christ has called you to live. The battle is won. The game is over. The script is written. It's checkmate. And so Paul says this in verse 11 and verse 12 and verse 14. He says, stand firm because the victory is not a place where we're fighting for it, but from it. And then he says, put on the armor. Put on the armor. The armor is simple. It's not really rocket scientists. It's the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness. We're going to cover these one by one in the weeks to come. The shoes of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the word of God. And so here's what's so cool. Here's where the football thing fits in perfectly. All of these things are like pads. They are all defense. And so my oldest son says, you've got to be willing to do two things. You've got to be willing, able to, being willing and able to take a hit. And then there's this other thing called the sword, which is the word of God. It's offense. You have to take the hit. And you can take the hit because the tomb is empty. And then you have the power with the armor of God on to give the hit, to take back the ground, to get the victory in Christ so that you don't have to live this oppressed, weak lifestyle that you've been living. You don't have to give up your authority in Christ because that Spirit of God lives in you. That you have that power and you have the body armor. I mean, the question has to, be quote, it has to be asked, when is enough enough? How bad are things going to have to get in your life and the world around you before you put on the armor and quit cowering to the enemy? There's victory in Christ. The protective covering is kind of to be seen like an umbrella. It's like, because there's still sin, you can't control the fact that it's raining down. But what you can control it's the protective armor of the umbrella. That it might still be raining because the enemy's story is written, but it's still moving. And so you can't control that there's sin and brokenness all around you, but you can control this reality that there's an umbrella over you, and it's raining, but it's hitting that protective covering, and it's falling around you, but it's not falling on you. That's the choice. That's the power. That's the freedom. Or I heard it said this way, and then we'll close because I see kids coming, and don't look now because they get rowdy. But, but here's another way of explaining it. There's a farmer, and his field is burning, and his son and him are running for their lives. And so they're running in this burning field, and it's intuitive to keep running further from the fire but the faster they run they realize the fire moves faster and so the dad who's the farmer and has the wisdom the patriarch of the family says to the son we got to take a different approach instead of running from it we need to go to a different location altogether and we don't need to run farther from it because it's too fast but we need to get in the right safety zone 
And so he says, you see that place that's already been burned? Let's get there. And the son says to him, I can't go to that spot because that's too close to the fire. And then the, the father looks at him and he says, son, this is how it is going to happen. We have to get under the protective covering of the fire that's already been burned because when you get to the ground that's already been burned and then the fire tries to consume it, it has nothing to feed off of. It's already been burned and the fire is around you, the umbrella's over you, but you're in a safety zone. And when we are in Christ, and we are living with the power of the resurrection in us, we are living in that safety zone that God's called us to, and we no longer have to whimper to the ways of the world. Amen? This is Easter. This is the victory. This is the freedom. We don't fight for it. We fight from it. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We love you. It does not matter what our life has been. It does not matter the story that started us where we are at. What matters is that we operate in a place of resurrection power. We thank you that the battle has been won. And so as we leave this space, break our heart and embolden our spirit. We love you. We thank you for the baptisms that are going to happen in an hour. We thank you for lives that are being changed. And God, I put my prayer for this church at New Life is that it is an umbrella, it is a covering, that it is a, a safety zone or a fire for a fire that's burning around us. But help us to not just take a defensive posture, Jesus, but to go on the offense with the gospel. We love you and we praise you. And we pray these things in your name. And everybody said, amen.